Hi there, and welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast. This is the show that takes a lighthearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. I'm Tony Stewart, and I'm joined by... Aaron Badgley. And Aaron, uh, we've got a quite a show here for episode 76. We've got, what, Fats Domino is on the list here? What else? Fats Domino, Billy Joel, or oh. as the Irish say, Billy Joel. <laughs> and ACDC, we're going to talk a bit about ACDC and a member of that band. And um, I think a couple of funny stories about white boots and long hair. Yeah, that sounds great. So this <laughs> is episode 76. Buckle up, folks, and we'll be right back. So to kick things off, we're in New York City on November the 18th, 1956, and we are at CBS Studio 50, which nowadays we know that is the Ed Sullivan Theater. But we're talking about the Ed Sullivan Show and a famous performance on there and one that was, I think, a little bit overdue, right? Because this is 1956. Fats Domino appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show and probably should have been on there before, don't you think, Aaron? I absolutely do. And you're, you're 100% right. It was long overdue, but thank goodness it happened. And and Tony, when you think about all the people that appeared on Ed Sullivan and the impact that that show had for Elvis, the Beatles, Fats Domino, the Stones, CCR, it's just an incredible television show that, that um, I think we could do a whole episode on the Ed Sullivan show one day. Yeah, we should. And live too, right? Which was, was fantastic. So it's not, it wasn't pre-recorded. This was live performing i mean yeah can you imagine that i i, I was watching the the country music awards a wee bit on, on the other night and i kept thinking some of these artists would be lost if you actually said no 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 you got to perform live <laughs> what, no what exactly live? yeah exactly <laughs> so he sang blueberry hill which i can't help but think of uh richie cunningham i was i, I knew you were going to say that <laughs> i knew uh, for those of you, Richie Cunningham, happy days, folks. Happy days. <laughs> that used to be I, my favorite I, one, Richie. You know, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. It's funny because it's it, it was so so. It's like rock around the clock for me is happy days as well because for yeah. years that was the theme song. But yeah, remember, remember Richie would you know you get a date? I found my thrill. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Bless his heart. Yeah. Uh, what I, I grew, I have the 78 of that, by the way, my mom's, well, it's not mine, it's my mom's, but now it's mine. What a great song. That song, oh, I always love that song. You oh, know? it's a, it's a fantastic song and it, and it speaks to how great it is. Look at the covers of who did it, right? This was an era, uh, Blueberry Hill was written before the rock and roll era mm-hmm. and covered mm-hmm. by Louis Armstrong, the Glenn Miller Orchestra, Gene Autry, Jimmy Dorsey. Uh, and the version by Fats Domino ranked number 82 in Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. He sold more than 65 million records. And then other places I read, he sold over 100 million. But this guy, Fats Domino, was, pardon the pun, huge. Um, he actually wasn't that big, but I mean, size-wise, but he was huge when it came to selling records. And Elvis Presley you know, big influence on Elvis, right? It was a huge influence on Elvis. And uh, that famous quote, Elvis Presley hated being called the king of rock and roll. He said, Fats Domino is the real king of rock and roll. Uh, The Beatles were also influenced by Domino, weren't they? Yeah. In fact, Paul McCartney wrote Lady Madonna in Fats Domino's style. And um, because if you listen to Lady Madonna, it borrows a bit from a song called Bad Penny Blues, 
which, which you know, had been a hit back in 56. But Domino, Fast Domino, recorded Lady Madonna in 68 after the Beatles, and it got him into the charts for the first time in, in a decade. So that was kind of cool that he was, you know, back in the charts, thanks to Paul. But um, have you ever, have you heard his version of Lady Madonna? I have, and it's great, actually. I mean, I you love it. It's a great song, period. I'm going to add it to... Uh, the playlist how about that yeah that sounds great but you know i'm just going to go off on a little tangent here for a second here and i'm going to be griping about something so i apologize about that folks this is where (laughs) this is where it drives me absolutely nuts these people who are looking for cultural appropriation under every corner you know Um, the beatles borrow from fats domino fats domino borrows from the beatles it is the way that music has always worked, we constantly borrow from each other. And those kind of things can't happen if everybody is obsessed that you can't sing that or you can't play that. I mean, that is absolute nonsense. And uh, End of rant. Sorry, I just had to say that. Well, I think the greatest example of all time when you sit, talk about that is uh, Hound Dog. Who, who wrote that song, right? And, and it, uh, everyone's screaming cultural appropriation about a song because Big Mama Thornton recorded it and did a great version of it. Yeah. But she didn't write it, and it certainly wasn't a spiritual. It was uh, written by two Jewish guys uh, in a Brill building in New York City. So there you go. Right? Yeah, exactly. You know, so anyway, I, that stuff drives me nuts, but enough on that. Yeah, Fats Domino, New Orleans, and raised a, a huge family, as they tended to be. And just surrounded by music all the time. I read a history of jazz. I just finished reading a huge book on the history of jazz uh, coming out of New Orleans, right? The birthplace of all that music and the the number of influences. But you look at people like uh, Louis Armstrong, also from New Orleans, right? And all this melting pot of all these different cultures, which produced such fantastic music and in every genre, Aaron, not just uh, not just jazz, you know, rock and roll, pop music, you name it. So it's pretty incredible. I like to read that book. I, I think you know, yeah, you know, that sounds bang on, and I'd love to read that. And and you can hear certainly in the fifties, sixties, and seventies. You know, you listen to some music that came out of the seventies. Brand X comes to mind, or Frank Zappa, where they did you know use jazz as the basis, kind of the foundation, and then build rock on top of it, and. Um, when you talk about New Orleans or New Orleans, I was pronounced it wrong. I mean, the music that came out of that little town, and mm-hmm. I've never been there. I've always that's kind of on my bucket list. Yeah, to me go too. To, yeah. Oh well, maybe that's another road trip for you and I. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I can't imagine. You look at the people like Fats. Do you remember when um, Katrina hit and um, Fats was poor? Fats was on his roof of his house. I do remember that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I was a sidebar, but. Um, just the birth of everything. And I, I'm also fascinated, Tony, I'm sure they speak to this in the book you read, how it kind of came north, jazz that is, you know? Well, it did. They uh, What happened was they were in New Orleans, uh, this whole music scene, this incredible burgeoning early jazz scene. And there was the great migration north to Chicago because just that's where work was available, right? And a lot of these guys, you know, may have worked during the day and played in the clubs and the juke joints at night. And, and there was an, a massive migration in the 1930s to Chicago. And like so much great music came out of there as well, right? And then spread well, everywhere. It goes back to what you said earlier on, that the people in Chicago borrowed from each other and it formed its own sound in Chicago. There's a difference between Chicago jazz and New Orleans jazz. Well, that's right. Right? 
because because it evolved, but also because people were borrowing and 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 adapting other stuff to go into the music, right? No, we absolutely, and that's what we do as musicians. You know, um, I I had a gig last night, and and we play everything. You know, uh, and we borrow during our solos, right? And, and am I am I appropriating because I quote something in a solo and an improvised solo? Like that's that's nuts. So I wish people would just stop doing that. But now let's take a look at your chart here, though. You've got the top five billboard sales, and I'm assuming that's for the week of November 18th, 1956. So what do you got here? Well, actually, I, I added one to number six, because uh, number yeah. six was, <laughs> yeah, you know why. Number six was Fats Domino, Blueberry Hill, and it would quickly go to number one because of the Sullivan appearance. Elvis Presley is at number five with a previous number one. What a hell of a single is this, right? And two songs on one single. Yeah. Don't Be Cruel and Hound Dog. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Just, oh my gosh. Number four, Guy Mitchell, Singing the Blues. I never felt more like singing the blues. Number three is a guy we've talked about several times, Johnny Ray, Just Walking in the Rain. Um, number two, Jim Lowe, Green Door. Man, I haven't heard that song. Oh, me probably. too, since I was a kid. Oh, me too, me too. I swear, since I was a kid. Yeah. And I was putting, I put the playlist together on Spotify and I had to listen to it again because it sounded so bloody good. Oh, it's a great um, song. Yeah, I, might, I remember, you know, hearing that when uh, my parents would have it on the turntable, you know, when I was a kid. Yeah. Oh, it's a great song. And number one, a guy named Elvis Presley with Love Me Tender. So there we go. That is the chart for November 18th, 1956. Now we're going to take a short little break and we are sticking around in New York City, but we're going ahead to 1978 and talking about William Joel. So we'll be right back. Nineteen seventy-eight was a big year for music. Lots of big albums came out, uh, and there was a huge album by the name of Greece, which seemed to be ever locked in number one. However, uh, a young man out of uh, New York City, Billy Joel, on his sixth album, knocked it out of number one. And this album, Tony, I tell you, it's a classic, and it it just—I don't know that anyone expected Fifty Second Street to do what it did in terms of being a a massive commercial success, but also it won Grammys. So huge album, man. It is a huge album and it really started to cement Billy Joel's reputation, but incredible, isn't it? How long really in the, in the scheme of things, it took Billy Joel to get to this point because such a talented guy, you know? And here's my rant. That would never happen in 2022 because Columbia records let him have a number of albums that didn't do well to grow as an artist, and they believed in them. So you're right, six years to get to number one. Nowadays, if your first album is at number one, bye-bye. You know, it's it's so sad that artists can't develop on a label anymore. In fact, I think it's longer than six years, isn't it? Because didn't Cold Spring Harbor come out in 1970? Right. So that, that you're That's talking eight years here. Eight yeah. years, yeah. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? But they let him, they let him grow as an artist, and it, it, it worked. I mean, look at the songs on this album, My yeah. Life. Big yeah. Shot, my favorite Billy Joel song, I think. Yeah, Big Shot's great. Honesty, My Life, Zanzibar, which is a great song. I, yeah. I Maybe a lot of people don't know that song. But then on the B side here, on side two, Stiletto, Rosalinda's Eyes, which is a cool song. Half a Mile Away, not a lot of people know that. Until the Night is excellent. And, and 52nd Street. But this is, you know, a real 
really interesting album because there's a little bit of everything in here. He's got, of course, Billy Joel heavily influenced by jazz and blues, and you can see that. Um, and the song Rosalinda's Eyes was inspired by his mother, Rosalind Nyman Joel. So there you go, you know, that it took this guy forever, but he finally, finally made number one. And it won the album of the year at the 1979 Grammys. So there you go. Any other thoughts on Billy Joel? Well, I think you just, you know, he this album gave Springsteen a run for his money when it came to, t- to writing about New York City and life on the streets. And, and I don't want to say struggle, but certainly, I mean, I and Billy Joel did this for a while, like Anthony's song, which was on The Stranger and stuff, right? I, mm-hmm. I love his, I should say my favorite Billy Joel song of all time is A Matter of Trust, but I do love this album. And what, what it did do was it, it, it brought back in, in the mid-70s, or late 70s. So disco's at its peak. Although, when you look at the top five albums in Canada, what I'm, I'm going to review in a few minutes, disco's kind of not either all the way in or it's kind of on the wane because what, what Billy Joel did was brought back the song. Um, and no offense to people who love disco, but let's be honest. I mean, disco was not all about the song. It was about a groove. It was about a beat. It was about... Yeah, it was about dancing. You know, dancing. And, and hey, fair enough, man. If that's your scene, that's grand. But... I like a good, I mean, so, so Billy Joel is like Springsteen to me, you know, or Bob Seger. All those artists were kind of emerging in the late 70s and bringing out huge albums. And this is another one. And 52nd Street was one of John Lennon's favorite albums too, by the way. Yeah. You know, just bringing back melody and, and beautiful mm-hmm. chord structures. And yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic album. So and I think, to, I just have to say, Tony, it was the first Commercially available rock album on CD in 1982. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's amazing. What a huge honor. But what's even more funny, not funny, strange, The Stranger, uh, is that when Sony returned to pressing vinyl records in 2018, what was the first album they pressed, Tony? Probably this one. It was. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, very cool. I mean, he, but the album's still big. I mean, you still, you know, it's, you go into any store, you can find it on vinyl, CD, whatever. Now, so. that is such a cool coincidence that I think I'm dragging out the bell here and ringing Yay! it. <laughs> <laughs> well, bring back the bell. So that's a, yeah, that sounds like a good protest slogan, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so you've got the top five Canadian albums that week in 1978. And you're right. What an interesting list. So uh, let's hear it. Well, and number six, actually, just outside the top five was Billy Joel's The Stranger. But you had, okay, so every single album in this chart, in my opinion, except for number one, is really based around singer-song, almost singer-songwriter. Al Stewart, Time Passages is at number five, which is one of my all-time favorite albums. Meatloaf, uh, Jim Steinem, Steinman wrote all those songs, Bad Out of Hell. I mean, that album is beyond classic. It's iconic. Well, yeah. In fact, I, before you go to number three, yeah. I, I, yeah. I dare you to find somebody in 1978 who didn't own Bad Out of Hell. Like, it seemed like everybody had that in their collection. Everybody. And, and, and every house party, every dance, you'd yeah. hear one of the songs on that album. Yeah, that, that album is beyond words how big it was. Mm-hmm. Um Rush is at number th- uh, number three with Hemispheres. And number two in Canada, soon to be number one in Canada, but number two at this week was Billy Joel, 52nd Street, and number one, Grease, the soundtrack. And and I'm not putting Grease. I've, I've never seen the film. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I haven't. I have no desire to. And I've heard the songs on the radio. Not my cup of tea, but that's fine. 
But uh, the top five, like from Billy Joel to Billy Joel, what a great set of music in there, right? Oh, it's fantastic. Now, speaking of great music. Tony, you, didn't, a, you, you didn't say you didn't say if you like Greece. Do you like Greece? No, no, no. I <laughs> not a, not a Greece fan. But uh, you know, speaking of great music, though, time for a segue into our next good, segment. Good. Yes, good. we're going to be talking about ACDC. Now, this this is a little bit sad. The next story, but a lot of fun to talk about these guys. So we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Jumping ahead to 2017 with some talk about ACDC. So here we are, uh, might as well say we're in Australia for this, uh, because these guys were from Australia, but it is November the 18th, 2017. And we just realized that all of our stories today are from November the 18th. That was entirely a fluke as we mentioned to each other during the break, but a little bit of sad news for AZDC. Malcolm Young died at age 64 and he was best known, of course, as a co-founder, the rhythm guitarist, backing vocalist and songwriter for ACDC. Were you a fan of ACDC? Actually, I was. Oh, uh, there's a lot too. of a lot of ACDC I love and I I always thought they were intelligent heavy metal, you know? Oh, um, exactly. And and tongue in cheek and funny and Funny. Oh my gosh, big balls, one of the funniest yeah. things you'll ever hear. Funny, so, funny, funny. I had the chance to see them live, which I am grateful for. I saw them live, gosh, it be 10, 12 years ago in Toronto at the uh, Rogers Center, Skydome, whatever you want to call it. But <laughs> it was uh, it was jammed, jammed to the rafters with people. And it was a fantastic show. And, uh, you know, every show, they have all their little things. They have the big blow-up doll. Uh, I can't remember her name, but uh, they've also <laughs> got Angus doing his strip tease, uh, yeah. which he drags out. Uh, have you seen them before live? I, I never got to see them live. In fact, that show you're talking about, I couldn't get tickets. It sold out. Okay, yeah. So you know which one I'm talking about. Yeah, but he, he drags he drags his strip tease out. He always strips down to his knickers, and um, he drags his strip tease out. That night, I think he, it was about 12 minutes, 12 or 13 minutes is the funniest thing. But what a great show. And, and they just, you know, full throttle from start to finish. So fantastic. Talented guy. And, and when you mentioned Angus, that's Malcolm's brother. I mean, mm -hmm. you look at the um, Malcolm Young came from a very musical family because his other brother, George Young, actually produced ACDC, but he was also a member of two bands. One was called the Easy Beats, Friday on My Mind, and Flash in the Pan. So we're talking about an incredible musical siblings, eh? And they just, yeah. they all work together and they seem to go, unlike the Kinks or the Gallagher brothers from Oasis, they seem to get along. Interesting that George Young died. Just three weeks prior to his brother Malcolm, eh? That's kind of interesting. It is. It's, uh, it's, it's sad too. And I remember, I remember this story when it happened. You know, back in 2017. Me too. But you know, uh, one of the great exports from Australia, right? And and there have been a few imitators. Do you remember there was that band Airborne that came out, and they? Do you remember them? They were a little more recent and, and they kind of yeah. took on ACDC yeah. with a little bit of a harder edge even, and they were all right. Jet, same, same thing with Jet. They're from Australia too. They, they kind of borrowed from the ACDC book of uh, rock. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you have any, do you have a particular ACDC song that sticks out for you as like one of your favorites? I mean, there's so many really. I 
Yeah, you know, it's funny when when I when I think about it, there's as you say, there's so many, and I'm not going to be that guy who says, oh, you know, I like the stuff with Bon Scott as lead vocalist or whatever, because Bon Scott was their original lead vocalist, and I love Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. I mean, that's yeah, that's a that's a great album. I don't think there's a weak track on the album. No. And uh, I like, I mean, I, I know it's their hit, and I, I'm, I'm sorry to say I love You Shook Me All Night Long. I think that is one of the best <laughs> rocks. Yeah, but, that is quintessential rock, isn't it? It is. It's perfect. It's like the perfect <laughs> rock song. It's, that, it's, that, it's, like, it's like Golden Earrings, um, you know, that song by Golden Earrings, Bright Our Love. Yeah. When you're driving on a summer's day, the window's down, and you hear the opening of uh, – if you shook me on that line, you just crank it up, man. You yeah, know I mean? exactly. You know what else? You know what other tune I I just love because it's just such a gutsy decision. Is uh, it's a long way to the top there when they throw in the bagpipe solo. <laughs> oh yeah, just... that's, that was, that's a, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot that. Yeah, that's, that's a classic too. Yeah, they they just they as you said, you know, they 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 took the piss out of themselves all the time, yeah. and um, they didn't take themselves so horribly serious. I mean, that's the downfall of a lot of, you know, sometimes you, you know, it's a spinal tap moment, right? Where yeah. you, you're like, really, you're just a hard rock band. It's fine, you be who you are. But uh, yeah, and, and they they did. Yeah, they never lost sight of who they are. And uh, I remember I went to a, a Catholic high school. And I remember the priests lecturing to us about how evil ACDC were, which, of course, made me want to run out and buy the album even quicker. <laughs> Nothing, you know, they used to say if you banned it in Boston, it would go to number one. The yeah. same thing, right? You get you get the schools or you get the um, or whoever condemning something for being satanic or whatever. And yeah. it just, it, it peaks interest for me. I don't know. I'm, I'm with you. I would do the same thing. I mean, I didn't go to a Catholic school. I went to public school, but even then, you know, you couldn't play highway to hell because, you know, it's war. <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, you did an ACDC chart here and, and I'm guessing this must be their top five albums, right? It uh, is, in terms of actually- sales. It just in terms of sales, not in terms of fans or or critics. But what I find interesting, Tony, that this is a band that never went away. And mm-hmm. and you might be surprised at, at what their bigger albums were. So number five is Dirty Deeds, Done Dirt Cheap. And I, I'm so proud that I can say that without singing it. They sold 7.2 million. The Razor's Edge from 1990. That was a big album. 7.8 million. Wow. This was the surprise. Black Ice from 2008. I sold 8 million copies. Wow, now, I, I, have a, I have a funny story about Black Ice, okay? Oh, go ahead. So uh, when I was teaching back in uh, 2008, some of the lads knew that I was a big ACDC fan. And so they they came to me, they burned a copy of Black Ice, right? And, and uh, on CD and gave it to me and said, Mr. Stewart, you know, the new ACDC album's out. You got to listen to it. It's amazing, right? So I'm excited. I bring it home and they've done it upright. Like they've got the cover on it and they've got the track list and everything. And I can't <laughs> wait. And I pop it in the CD player and it was all Celine Dion. <laughs> I was oh, like, you bastards. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you got me. You totally got uh, me. Because the next and, day and, they're like, did you listen to it? What'd you think? <laughs> <laughs> and each and every one of those students failed that year. No, just kidding. <laughs> oh, no. That's props. a good joke. That's that was a, a great joke. Props to them. I said, man, that was, yeah, that was hilarious, that's, boys. That's, that's full on. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where they are now. That's great. Uh, <laughs> Number two was Highway to Hell, 9.3 million. And number one, big surprise, 
50 million copies of Back in Black in the world today, you know? That's so, amazing. Yeah, they sold a lot of records, these guys. Wow. They were huge. They were huge. They were huge. Now, we are going to jump ahead to our Memphis to Merseyside moment, and we've got a double one. And Both of these stories are a little on the odd side, so I can't wait to talk about this. We'll be right back with our From Memphis to Merseyside moment. So here we are in our From Memphis to Merseyside segment, and we've got a couple of short stories because they're, they're, they're not related, but they are kind of amusing. I'm, I'm just going to jump in with the Beatle one, if that's okay, Tony. Yeah. Okay, so this guy named John Waitman, who's a headmaster at Surrey Grammar School. This is in 1963. So the Beatles aren't even as big as they're going to be yet, but they're number one on the charts in England. So here in Surrey, in England, he banned all pupils... <laughs> Sorry, from having <laughs> beetle haircuts. Uh, and his comment at the time, and I just, I would like this on a t-shirt. Can you do it in a British accent though? Like a, a uh, strict okay, yeah. I'll, I'll do a various. This ridiculous style brings out the worst in boys' physicality. It it makes them look like morons. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It makes them look like morons. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, just a bloody moron you are. <laughs> Tell I, us. I just, Tell us what you really think there, John. Yeah. Wow. Wow, John. John, <laughs> geez. You know, like, I, I mean, you're a teacher. Can you imagine saying to a kid, you, you look like a moron? <laughs> <laughs> well, oddly enough, the Beatles went on to a bigger success than John Waitman. I don't know what happened to him. <laughs> um, how was my accent? Was that all right? Stiff yeah, it was, it was pretty good. Yep. And, yeah, uh, yeah. But it just speaks to, uh, you know, the popularity of the Beatles in 1963 before they broke in, in North America. But uh, every boy wanted to be a Beatle, right? And every girl wanted to be with a Beatle. So I think, I think it killed the bro cream sales. Because um, <laughs> all, all that grease got washed out of their hair and the started coming it forward. But yeah, so that's, that was the 1963. Can you imagine your band from wearing, what, what happened to they came to school with a haircut? Would they get sent home? Would they be? I, I would assume they would, would be sent home. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 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 Well, you went to a Catholic school, so you had a uniform you had to wear, right? Yeah. The, the kids had to wear uniforms. And uh, I mean, it, usually the policy was if you weren't in uniform, you just got sent home. But I don't know. I don't know how much longer that, can survive in today's society. We'll see. We'll see. Well, so Mr. Waitman, my hat's off to you for calling kids morons. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, November 14th, 2015, you know, this would make for a really good episode in and of itself. All the, if we were to talk someday about all the Beatles and Elvis Presley memorabilia that's out there for sale and how much this stuff sells for. Yeah. It, yeah. it would be fascinating. So the pair of white boots, the iconic white boots worn by Elvis Presley during the 1968's comeback special on television, a collector bought those, a, a UK collector bought them for £29,500, $44,500. So Elvis was a size 11. They were Verde, whatever that means, the boots. But he, he wore those boots while singing If I Can Dream. And it was two months after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Now, on our radio show, on Bombshell Radio, uh, our From Memphis to Merseyside radio show, 
we talked about that a couple of episodes ago about how when we did the protest songs episode, how Elvis Presley really went out on a limb singing If I Can Dream against the wishes of his manager, right? Yeah, 100%. And um, Tony, I just, I just uh, you know, I think it's important to, re- you know, that, that he he did that on his own. And I, I wish he had taken more of a stand with the colonel. Um, but also, I did some research after you sent this, and the gentleman who purchased the boots was John Waitman, a headmaster. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> it, just, just kidding, folks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, but those boots would be worth a mint now, right? Yeah. I mean, listen, if I had a gazillion dollars, would I buy some of this stuff? Probably, but I don't, so. Yeah, exactly. But you know what? Let's do that soon. Let's uh, all, you know, next time I come across a a week where there's all kinds of stories about memorabilia, let's do it. Let's just do a show all about that. That would be I, I, one, of my, one of my favorite stories was in 1986. I remember this to the day I die. 1986. Someone actually had a piece of toast that George Harrison hadn't finished when they were filming A Hard Day's Night, and that sold for £100,000. Seriously? Seriously. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Did the guy eat it after? I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> put some marmalade <laughs> on it? I, maybe. I don't know. But... Uh, but if you you know if you if you think about it the 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 memorabilia market is is just going up and up and up if you um i was reading an article that this is stuff that never goes down in value it's like it's unlike real estate these days um it's still going up in value so there you go well that's pretty incredible now guess what aaron we are at the end here what a what an interesting road trip this was it's a lot fun. of fun. This yeah, a lot of laughing fun. today. Yeah. This was therapeutic. Yeah, we usually good. record these in the morning, and uh, nothing like a few belly laughs first thing in the morning, eh? Damn straight. I, was, I, I thought this was a good show. Good one. So, folks, we'd like to thank you, as always, for tuning in. And don't forget that there's two ways to listen to this podcast. You can either listen to it on your favorite podcast player, or you can listen to it Wednesday evenings at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Bombshell Radio. If you're a Bombshell Radio listener, you get the bonus post-podcast show. I love that alliteration. And you get to hear some of the songs that we talk about. But if you're listening to this on your favorite podcast player, we always include a link in our show notes. Aaron puts together a fantastic playlist of all kinds of different songs that we've talked about or alluded to on the show. And, And this week, I'm sure it's going to be no exception. So I can't wait to hear it. Also, we should thank Rick Denis for providing the music for today. The tune that you heard at the beginning was called Slide On Up, and the tune that you're hearing right now underneath of us is called This Rumbling Sky. And this has been an M2M production. I'm Tony Stewart here with Aaron Badgley, recorded from the bunker here in beautiful Perth, Ontario. And it is beautiful. So folks, if the man is getting you down, Aaron, what should you do? Just keep on rocking, because that's basically it. Highway to hell, yeah! (laughs) See you next time, folks.